Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to 2 Kings chapter 23. Again, welcome to those of you who are visiting. We have been going through the book of Kings for many months now, and we are finishing up chapter 23 and moving into chapter 24. Now, I will uh, forewarn you that we have a number of names of kings, and um, I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I can um, so that we're not just utterly confused and by lunch and who's doing what. Uh, so just keep in mind what we're doing, what the historian I think is doing here is he's trying to show you the downgrade, okay, in rapid succession because these reigns were rather short and uh, insignificant except insignificant except that uh, they were evil. And so let's, um, let's pray. And, uh, you know, we just sang Psalm 95, so let's also, you know, check our own heart and attitudes uh, this morning. We don't want to put the Lord to the test and have his word be a means of hardening us, uh, but rather softening us today. So let's pray. Lord, we know that uh, we're still sinners and uh, we don't deserve grace, but we are asking together as a church that we would receive grace from you through the reading and especially the preaching of the word. Let us not put you to, te- to the test, Lord. Give us faith to believe what is written and to look to Jesus Christ, of whom this scripture speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if we will, um, 2 Kings 23, and I want to pick up at verse 30. This is where we see Josiah. He dies and he's brought home. And where we're going to see a succession here, boys and girls, of four kings right in a row. So I'm going to take us uh, from 2 Kings 23, verse 30, and then go on uh, down to chapter 24 and following there. So let's, let's read Verse 30, chapter 23. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh, Necho, imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and talent of gold. Pharaoh, Necho, made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of of Josiah his father and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old, when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. He did evil 
in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Chapter 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land, he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, Mataniah, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, last week, you'll remember that we were talking about Josiah. And Josiah is uh, one of the greatest of the kings of Judah and Jerusalem. You always want to remember Josiah, boys and girls, as a good king. He was faithful. And uh, last week, we saw how Josiah reinstated the Passover, which was a forerunner of what today is the Lord's Supper. Um, 
Josiah reinstated the Passover, and then we saw how he removed the abominations of the mediums and the spiritists, uh, those occult-like activities that were going on. And then uh, we saw that um, Josiah ended up dying. He went out to battle, probably should not have gone. He was warned not to go, but he went anyway, and he died in battle while he was fighting uh, the Egyptians. So that brought to an end here the reformations that we have been studying for these past many weeks. And uh, it's important for us, I think, to remember Josiah because he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful, and Jesus uh, brought about reformations in his church and his earthly ministry and continues to bring them about in his heavenly ministry by way of his spirit. But today, what we're going to now focus on is now that, uh, now that Josiah has died, we see a succession of four kings um, that follow, and, and yet there's nothing we can really say of much good uh, about any of the kings that follow. Now, my plan is this. I'm going to take us at 40,000 feet, a flyby through what we just read, so that at least we have an overview. I don't want to get bogged down too much uh, because there are so many different names. I mean, you've got uh, Jehoahaz, and you've got uh, Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin, and then uh, Eliakim, which he becomes Zedekiah. So you've got these four kings. These four kings, though, you can, for the kids, the smallest kids here, you can all remember all four of those kings, though, are, are bad, okay? None of them has the heart like Josiah did for the Lord. So we're seeing Judah and Jerusalem on what Spurgeon, I think, in the 19th century called the downgrade. You remember Spurgeon was involved in what was called the downgrade controversy and that Spurgeon was fighting uh, the decline of evangelicalism in England in his day in 19th century. What we're seeing here is really something similar here. The Reformations that Josiah had instituted seemed not to have really taken root. This is the trouble with top-down reformations. Um, now, God can use top-down reformations. I mean, we, we, we see that, okay, um, Henry VIII didn't have the best of motives in becoming a Protestant. I think we can all agree to that, all right? Uh, did God use that? Well, yes. But was it as thorough a reformation as what took place in Scotland from the bottom up? Well, I think the answer is no. Um, in the opinion of this Presbyterian, I have my biases, obviously. But uh, I think the answer is, is no, that um, a bottom-up reformation, I think, is superior. Now, we want godly magistrates uh, exhorting us as a nation to godliness and holiness. Um, but you can see the weakness, though, of top-down reformations is that once that leader is removed, you know, put not your trust in princes, because as soon as the prince is dead, his plans often crumble to nothing. And so you see the weakness here of this. Despite all the great work that Josiah had done, um, it appears that it had not fully taken root in the lives of the ordinary people of Jude and Jerusalem. Now, we trust that by God's grace, it did take root in the lives of many. But apparently, it was not enough to stem the inevitable judgment that comes. Now, one of the ways that the Lord brings a people under judgment 
is that he then does hand them over to wicked men. And what we see is a short succession of wicked kings who do not emulate Josiah and do not follow in the ways of the Reformations, but precede uh, their allegiance by looking back to Manasseh himself. And, and we see from our text this morning that it was Manasseh and his sins that the Lord was not willing to allow to go unpunished. That the, that the murders and the bloodshed of Manasseh were crying out to God. And as Matthew Henry in his commentary notes, is that, um, is, is that time does not atone. You know, you, you hear that phrase, time heals all wounds. Now, time can help in some ways, but we should not think that time atones for sin. That's why there is a day of reckoning. That's why there is a day of judgment. That God is going to uh, vindicate the righteous and he is going to punish the wicked. And this is also why if you are outside of Jesus Christ this morning, you're in trouble. Because there's a day coming where God will say, well, what atonement do you bring me for your sins? And if, if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have no covering. You can't say, well, I was better than most people. Uh, I was better you know, than the majority. I wasn't the worst of people. I, I, never, you know, I, never, I never went to prison. I didn't, I didn't physically murder anybody. But that's not God's standard of atonement. That's not God's standard of justice. God wants 100% perfect obedience. And the only place you can get that is in Jesus Christ. So the other thing that we're going to see in, in this uh, is that these kings really serve as an antitype for Jesus Christ and that the solution for God's people will never ultimately be found in sinful kings. It's going to have to be in Jesus Christ that God is going to bring about the reformation that will withstand eternity. And, and you and I need to see that, that, the, that these kings, whether they be good kings bringing about reforms and God blessing them, or whether they be evil kings and they're doing great wickedness and God is bringing chastening upon them, they are all pointing us to the need of Jesus Christ. You know, the theme, if you look at the book of Judges, was what? They had no king in their days. The obvious solution was they need a king. But if we see here in the historical periods where they do have a king, what's the lesson? Well, the lesson isn't that there was no king, but that the kings were inadequate and that we need a king of kings and a lord of lords. We need Jesus Christ. So if there is one other lesson that I want us young people and old alike to, to get today is that we all have need of Christ to build his kingdom and his church. And I'll, I want to talk about that in the end. Well, let's cruise at an altitude of 35,000, 40,000 feet here and review what do we have from verses 30, chapter 23, all the way to the end of chapter 24. You have a succession of four kings. You have, first of all, Jehoahaz. And then after Jehoahaz, you have Jehoiakim. And then after Jehoiakim, you have Jehoiachin. And then after Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. So Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. You got that, boys and girls? 
If we ask you at the fellowship meal, tell me the four bad kings after Josiah. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. All right, so Jehoahaz. Now, what do these kings have in common? Well, one, they were all relatively young, but more in common is that they all did evil. If you look, Jehoahaz is introduced to us in verse 30, but in verse 35 through 37, what are we told? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that Jehoiakim is introduced in chapter 24, verse 1. But what do we, uh, what do we see? We, we are told uh, that he does evil. He, he, re, the, he remains in the sins uh, of Manasseh. We see Jehoiachin in verse 8 and verse 9. He did evil. We see Zedekiah in verse 17 introduced. And verse 19, we're told he did evil. So notice here that the historian, I think, is making this very clear that each king introduced is doing evil. Now, Jehoiahaz was 23. We're told that he did evil. And he was uh, captured and imprisoned by a pharaoh named uh, Neco, N-E-C-O. And so he had a very short reign. I mean, you know, you're, you're king for three months and then boom, you're gone. And you're taken away. And Nico installs another brother of his uh, named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim pays tribute to Egypt. And, and so you have that. Now, um, after Jehoiakim, though, Jehoiakim dies. And during this time of Jehoiakim, there's something happening in international relations that you need to understand. Is that at the beginning of the period of these four kings, Egypt was kind of the, the big dog if you will. He's the alpha dog, King Nico. But with, within a, a couple generations, Egypt diminishes and Babylon increases. And here's where you get to probably what most of you are really familiar with, and that is we're heading towards the, what is called the Babylonian captivity. So that things are, are changing in the history of the nations around. Assyria has been diminished and now Egypt, which for a while was on a prominent on the scene, but it too is going to be diminished. And we saw this last week when uh, Pharaoh Necho was going to take on Babylon. And that's where King Josiah got in trouble. He, 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 he involved himself in a conflict he probably should have avoided. Though I could see how some people would say, yeah, but it was going to happen eventually anyway. That this, there was going to be a showdown between Judah and somebody uh, eventually. But anyway, Egypt is declining, and now you have Babylon. And this is the infamous, boys and girls, the infamous Nebuchadnezzar. Now you need to know that name, Nebuchadnezzar, because he is uh, the, the, the head of Babylon, he is the, the head of gold, to use the imagery of Daniel in, in the statue here. And he is the one that the Lord is going to call his servant. <laughs> and he is going to call him his servant who, who does what? Brings the rod of chastening. He's, he is the rod of my anger, the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 10. And God is going to use Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to spank his people severely for their sins. And then, though, the prophets tell us that after Nebuchadnezzar does that, after Babylon does that, what's God going to do? He says, I'm going to take that rod of anger and I'm going to break it over my knee. 
So I'm going to take this rod. I'm going to spank my own people with it. But then I'm going to punish those who do this to my people. And I'm going to break the Babylonian power over my knee. And so we, one of the things that I want you to see is that, that God here is always at work in his providence as he deals with the nations. And that is, I think, true still this day as well. That God has a couple things in view. One is what we would call his general providence. God is in control of all things, both of the wicked and of the righteous. And, and God's general providence is, if you will, kind of that stage on which all of human history takes place. But in the midst of that, you have this special providence towards his people. That is, his redemptive purposes uh, are especially towards his church. And so as God raises up nations and casts down other nations, always in view is God and his special eye towards his people. Now, what does that mean for us in the 21st century? There's a lot going on, isn't there? We're all probably wondering, where are these events in Ukraine going to lead? Is this going to break out into a greater conflagration that involves the whole world and eventually involves us, like World War I and World War II? Is this just another one of those European lags where the conflict goes on for a few years in Europe and finally America's dragged into it? Or is it going to get settled? What about in Asia? Are we seeing the same thing here again? Uh, just this, this weekend, China's defense budget up by 7%. A headline in the paper. Increasing their defense spending by 7%. It's a lot. What's going on? Are we going to get dragged in? We don't know, but this we do know God is sovereign. God is orchestrating all of these things. Now, does that mean that everything that is happening is good? No. I mean, why did Nebuchadnezzar sack Jerusalem? Well, he sacked Jerusalem because he's a bloodthirsty tyrant who likes killing and conquering other nations and taking all their wealth and making himself uh, the top guy in the region of the world. And, and you know, but God is still going to use that for his own purposes. Nebuchadnezzar's got one purpose for it. God's got another purpose for it. God is in control even over the wicked motivations and the actions of men. And so we need to, as we look at the events that are going on today, and, and we sit there and search and wonder, well, what's going to happen? Where is this leading? We know at least a couple things. God is behind it all. And then we remember Romans 8, 28, that all things are working together for our good, for the good of the church and for the glory of God. God will see to it that he is honored and glorified through all these things. Now, that doesn't mean the things are going to be pleasant. That doesn't mean that, that we can guarantee we're going to die in peace. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be great conflict for us. It doesn't mean there might not be terrible things that you're going to see your sons heading off to war. You may see shortages, all kinds of things going on. You may not live the standard of living that you've been used to, but the Lord is in control of all this. And he's going to see to it that it's all working together for the glory of the church. So why is God turning his people over to these wicked rulers? Well, because of their wickedness and of their evil. They, they were complicit in the sins of Manasseh. We have to remember 
Uh, There was no great outcry, at least there's no recorded great outcry against the sins of Manasseh when he was doing this. The people often were participating in the idolatry. Why do they have all these high places and all these idols? And who exactly was going over to sacrifice their children in the fire of the god of Molech here? Well, it was the people. The people were guilty of these sins. Now, that's not, again, to say that every Israelite was involved in these sins, but there was a corruption, and you have to remember that Israel is the church in the Old Testament. So these things are not just happening in a pluralistic society in a, among any nation here. This is happening within, if you will, the church itself. This is the church that are doing these great and evil things and are provoking the God of heaven who has gone to so much effort to redeem them by a strong right arm and to point them to Jesus Christ and to set them as an example for the nations and as a light unto the world. And what are they doing? They are turning that light into the darkness. And as Jesus said, when the light becomes darkness, how great is the darkness? And when the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to what? Be trampled upon by men. And so God says, okay, You, my people, have lost your saltiness. You are good for nothing but to be trampled upon by the Babylonians. If you want to live in your idolatry, well, then I'll send you to the land of idols. I will excommunicate you out of my land. If you don't want to observe my Sabbaths, then I'll expel you out of the Sabbath land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And I'll make you serve a people whose language you don't understand and whose gods you have not known so that you will see what you have rejected in me, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we are in danger as a Christian, post-Christian people to do the same. We need to remind ourselves and we need to remind our neighbors the cost of rejecting Jesus Christ. The cost that comes with rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior not just of our own individual life, but of our cultural life. There comes a cost with that. And God turns us over to those sins. The love grows cold. We're given over to deluding influences. Those that represent us are increasingly involved in wickedness. And the Spirit of the Lord departs from the temple, as Ezekiel said. So you see this downgrade here. From Jehoiakim, we go to Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin does evil. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings a siege to it. And Jehoiachin surrenders to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He, his family, all his advisors, etc., they surrender. So you have to realize that the judgment of Babylon comes in stages. Um, this is probably about the time when Daniel, you, you know how Daniel as a teenager is taken into captivity. This is probably about that time where Daniel is taken away. The, 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 the surrender and where Babylon comes in and they say, okay, I, I, want, I want you, 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 you. And they just start picking all the people they want in their administration and taking them away. And, and that's where you pick up in the story of, of, of Daniel Um, And then we see Zedekiah becomes king. And here again, he reigns 11 years, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll talk more about Zedekiah uh, next week. But uh, Zedekiah would be the last of the kings of Judah. 
And uh, he's going to end up resisting uh, Nebuchadnezzar, even though you read Isaiah, and Isaiah says, look, just give yourself over, surrender, and, and uh, serve the yoke of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember Isaiah's wearing a, a yoke of wood, and, and uh, another false prophet comes and breaks it and says, oh no, you know, don't surrender, Zedekiah. God's going to break this yoke of Babylon from over you. And, and of course, that prophecy didn't come true at all. And so Zedekiah is eventually going to have his, he's going to be captured. Um, he's going to see his children die in front of his eyes, and then they're going to poke his eyes out and take him away. Now, we're going to end on a good note uh, at the end of this, where we're going to see Jehoiachin, who did surrender himself. He is going to, at the end of this story, next week, we're going to see him change his prison clothes and begin to sit and eat at the king's table in Babylon. So the historian gives us a glimmer of hope at the end. Uh, so I don't want to leave you all depressed and discouraged here. <laughs> so let me move on, though. I, I need to move on to the applic applicatory part here. What are the lessons of this sad and tragic history of the post-Josiah kings? What are the lessons of the sad and tragic history of the post-Josiah kings? I want to give you at least four here before we come to the Lord's table. Number one, uh, we ought to thank God that the Lord has given us a perfect and righteous king in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be sad, in a sense, and depressed by what we see, because why? Well, Christ has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father with all power and authority given unto him. There is good news here for us. The good news is that we serve a perfect king and God is not displeased with you because of the imperfections of the king you serve. You're not going to suffer for the sins of Jesus because Jesus has no sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, he is holy, blameless, and undefiled. You see, David could sin and take a census and God kills a number of the Israelites. They suffer for the sins of David. But you and I can have assurance that there is no suffering for the sins of Christ because Christ alone, the Father could say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So today we ought to give thanks for Jesus Christ as our king. Jesus Christ is holy, he's blameless, he is righteous. He, uh, being both God and man, he satisfies the demands of God's law perfectly for us. He... Um, he represents God perfectly to us. And so he represents us perfectly to God and God perfectly to us. He is the perfect mediatorial king. So number one, give thanks to the Lord this day for Jesus Christ. Number two, thank the Lord that Jesus Christ, the king, can bring about repentance and reformation in his people in a way that the earthly kings of Israel could not. Thank God that Jesus Christ, your king, is able to do a work in you and in his church that Josiah could never do. Josiah could never make you cause you to be born again. Josiah cannot convert your children. Josiah cannot reform your family. Josiah cannot reform your church and your culture. But Jesus Christ has the power and the ability to do it. Jesus Christ is the one, by his spirit, causes you to come to life. So that weak as these kings are, even the best of the kings, they are still very weak. Whereas Christ 
has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, we have all the more reason as God's people to be supplicating our king and asking him for the spirit of God. Listen, you could go to Hezekiah, Josiah, David, Solomon, pick your king that you like the best, and you could ask him to bring about all kinds of blessings in your family, and they would tell you, I don't have that ability. I don't have that power. I might be able to give you some material blessings, but I, they don't have the ability to, to cause anybody to be born again. But Jesus Christ does, and therefore you, as his people, should be going to the throne of Christ very regularly and petitioning him. Listen, if Esther, at the risk of her own life, will go to an evil king and request things and get things from him, how much more a king whose scepter is always extended to you and saying, come. In fact, we're told in the Bible, the Bible says, wear me out. Give me no rest until I what? Make Zion the praise of the earth. We have every reason to go to him and petition him. Number three, our king paid for our sins that judgment wouldn't fall on us. Jesus Christ, our king, did something that no other king in Judah could do, and that is be an atoning sacrifice for the people of God. We are not under the wrath and condemnation of God this morning. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Judicially, there is nothing by which God is righteously angry towards us in a judicial sense. Now, there may be things that displease him as a father that we need to deal with. But I'm saying here, in terms of our standing, our legal standing before God is one of someone who is reconciled. There is no enmity against us. There's no enmity towards us by God. God is satisfied with you because of Christ for you. The king has laid down his life for his people. Christ is no ordinary king. Ordinarily, kings ask you to die for them. Christ is different in that he died for you. He died for the nation. He died that you would not be under the wrath and penalty of God's judgment. You are justified when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. You're as righteous as the most mature saint in Christ's kingdom. Even though you're a newborn babe in Christ, you have the same righteousness. That righteousness is not augmented by your faithfulness. It is not diminished by your sin. It is a righteousness that is alien to you. It is Jesus' righteousness that is given to you. And so, therefore, we have all the more reason to thank God and Jesus Christ today. Number four, and we need to bring it to a close and come to the table here. Number four, and that is that Jesus Christ, our King, is building the walls of Jerusalem all over the world. Jesus Christ is doing what no 
king of Judah was able to do. Now, the best of the kings of Judah, what did they always do? They were always working on the wall. What is going to happen after these walls are destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar? We're going to see Nehemiah building the wall again. But here, what the Bible says is that Jesus Christ is building up the new Jerusalem. And it's a Jerusalem whose gates will never, ever be shut because he will deal with the evil once and for all in the world. You don't have to worry about the surrounding nations. You don't have to worry about the non-believers and the wicked and the idolaters coming in and sacking the city. You don't have to worry that somehow this new heaven and new earth is going to be despoiled by people who have yet to be conquered. Jesus Christ is going to conquer all, both in history and in eternity. He will build his kingdom. He will build his church. He will build the new temple. He will build the walls of Jerusalem. And how is he building it? Convert after convert after convert. The Holy Spirit is causing people to believe in Jesus Christ in China, in Korea, in Vietnam, in Laos, in South America, North America, Europe, Africa, even in the Antarctic. God is at work. Christ is building his church. From every tribe, every tongue, every nation, he is building the walls of Jerusalem. He is building the walls of Zion, unlike any other king could do. And that's why Peter, in his epistle, he says, you are a living stone. When you come to Christ, you're a part of the kingdom of God. You're a part of the new Jerusalem. You're a living stone. You get stuck here in the temple or in the wall of Zion. And, and you ever wonder why, you know, why does Psalm 48 tell us to praise the walls of Zion? You know, <laughs> well, it's in anticipation of the great multitude of people that are going to be converted to Jesus Christ. Look at the ramparts, because what the Jerusalem signified was, was a uh, type of the, the new Jerusalem that is to come in the Messiah. Now that Jesus Christ has come and has died, has been raised from the dead, he is building Jerusalem up. Now, it's hard to see with the natural eye. And that's why the media doesn't spend a whole lot of time covering what's going on in the church, unless there's a scandal or unless it's somehow tied to politics. That's all the media cares about these days when it comes to theology. How does this affect who I'm voting for? And, uh, you know, what scandal can we dig up? That's all they're caring about. But that is not God's concern. God's chief concern is in building his church uh, worldwide. So we should thank God that Jesus Christ is doing it. The, the, the gates of, um, in fact, the gates of Jerusalem, not only are they going to be open forever, but uh, we are told that the enemy's gates, the gates of Babylon, the gates of hell, are actually going to fail. See, people often hear the words that the, you know, the, the gates of hell are not going to prevail, and they think, oh, we're the ones being assaulted But no, you're getting that backwards. It's the gates of hell. It's their gates that are being assaulted. It's their darkness that Christ is conquering. He's Remember, he's the strong man who comes into the house and plunders the house. He ties down the strong man in the house, who is Satan, binds him from deceiving the nations, and then he comes and he takes all these people that are under that darkness and dominion of Satan, and he says, now these are mine. And he builds up Jerusalem 